Well, if you've been with us through the course of this series, you know we have made it all the way to the seventh of the seven churches. And uh, get ready, put on your bike helmet. This is the worst of them. Uh, I hope you've been encouraged by this series. As I thought, as I began this series, I started to think and pray, God, what would you say to our church in this season? What would you say to us as we seek to be, uh, honor you, as we seek to live our lives according to what you would desire for us? And uh, I've felt convicted. I've felt challenged. I've felt pressure. I've felt um, encouraged to repent. I'm, I'm sure that's the same of you as you've looked at each of these churches. Each of these churches has a way of sort of opening up our spiritual lives and demonstrating the areas where we need to reorder, to reform, to reflect, and to ask Jesus for his grace to allow us to walk in line with the repentance he calls every single church to. So uh, I hope that's been an encouragement and um, and a challenge to you. Let me talk to you about Laodicea just for a second. Laodicea is in, in, uh, I'm in Romans, I don't know why. uh, Turn to Revelation, if you haven't already. Revelation chapter 3, the very last book of your Bible. Uh, We said several weeks ago, Pergamum was one of those cities that was the key city in terms of being popular. It was the most influential city of its day. Uh, This city, Laodicea, is the most wealthy city of its day. Uh, You remember last week when we talked about Philadelphia, Philadelphia had this instability problem, right, and the earthquakes that they experienced. Well, as they experienced this instability in their city, everybody fled to the outskirts of the city, and you had this city of Philadelphia that was uh, affected by these earthquakes. And what Rome would do during that time is they would take finances and they would send them to these cities to rebuild them and to strengthen them. That's one of the benefits of taxes. It's like the modern-day FEMA Uh, is what Rome was. Well, Rome uh, did that to a variety of cities. That's why taxation worked for Rome, and they kept the emperor worship and the cultic worship happening in these key cities that were very, very valuable to them. Well, Laodicea also had an earthquake in its past. And Rome came along, and Rome said, we'd like to provide the finances that you need to rebuild your city. Laodicea denied them. And they denied that request. They said, we have more than enough financial stability and strength to rebuild our own city. In fact, in light of an earthquake that devastated the city, the Laodiceans got together and rebuilt their city even better than before without any aid from Rome. Uh, If you were to, there's a term uh, that was in uh, in the scriptures about the city of Corinth uh, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And it was the term Corinthianize. To Corinthianize means to corrupt through debased desires. It was a well-known euphemism during the day. Well, in similar, uh, in similar idea, the city of Laodicea was known for vast, vast amounts of wealth. So much so, if you were to refer to it being a Laodicean city, you would know in your mind that this is a wealthy place. This is a significant financial and wealthy kind of center. So as we embark on this final letter, we've seen some threats to the uh, churches throughout the course of these letters, haven't we? We've seen false teaching. We've seen persecution. We've seen uh, the debased desires of a church going sideways and not clinging to, to true doctrine, but to going after teachers who would give them what their itching ears want to hear. 
So let me ask you a question as we begin. I think this question will help frame up in our minds Jesus' counsel to the church at Laodicea. What right now is the greatest threat to your spiritual life? Where should you and I be most concerned about our spiritual lives? And that question is going to form the counsel that Jesus gives in this letter to this incredibly wealthy church in an incredibly wealthy and successful city. And Jesus is going to react perhaps with the most vivid reaction in all of the scriptures concerning him and who he is, when he provides a reaction to what this church is experiencing and who this church is. All right? So there's your question. Where do I need to be most aware? What's the greatest threat to my spiritual life? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for your word to us. Thanks for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ that we've sung about already, that we remember in our time together. Would you order our thoughts and emotions and the ways that we think here today, would you challenge us and shape us to be the kind of men and women that honor you with our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 3. You see that last paragraph start in verse 14. Let's jump in here together. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen. That's a great way to refer to Jesus. Amen is a transliterated word from Hebrew. Uh, it literally means in the Hebrew truth or certainty. God calls himself the God of the amen or the God of truth in the Old Testament. Uh, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus says this phrase, amen, amen, or verily, verily, I say unto you. Truthfully, truthfully, I say this. Jesus uses that phrase. He's the only person in the Bible who uses it, and he always uses it to introduce some solemn kind of truth. So as this letter opens, Jesus lays claim to the fact that he is the amen, which aligns with his personhood as he is about to give a declaration about this church, that he is divine. He aligns himself with the God of heaven. Not only that, the next phrase that he uses helps to interpret the amen. What does it mean for Jesus to be the amen? Paul in his letter to the Second Corinthians say that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And it's through him that we utter our amen to those promises, to the glory of God. That we say as a church, amen, Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus begins his letter to this church saying, amen, I am who I say I am. Second, he's the faithful and true witness, which is really an explanation of what the amen means, right? We've talked about Jesus being true throughout the course of these letters, and we said that Jesus, as being the way, the truth, and the life, always corresponds to what is true true, what is real, that when he speaks, it corresponds to what is true and valid, both in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. So he begins this letter saying, I'm the amen, I'm the faithful and true witness. You can always depend on what Jesus says, amen? Jesus isn't ever confused. He never says more than he needs to. He never says less than he needs to. He always speaks the truth because it comes out of the very nature of who he is. He always sees things clearly. So, he's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. And finally, he's the beginning of God's creation. That's kind of a weird word. Uh, it's translated a variety of ways throughout the New Testament. That word beginning, sometimes it refers to the beginning in a sequence of events. 
Sometimes it refers to the elementary principles that Paul writes in the book of Colossians. I think the translation is probably better here the way it's translated in other places in the New Testament, and it's translated, I think, better in the NIV when it says that Jesus is the ruler. He's the ruler of God's creation. Now, why is that going to be important? I'll show you by the time this letter wraps up. Uh, John uses the term. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's where he was, the beginning of, of the first creation. And then you move into the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians says he's the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from among the dead. He's the beginning that in everything he might be preeminent. So that Jesus, not only as ruler, but it's probably better translated as source, He's the, he was there with, with God in the beginning as the source of the created order in the old creation. He's there with God, in, and he's the source of the new creation, which is the church, right? The new birth, the new creation comes through Jesus Christ. He's the ruler. He's the source. He's the one in charge. That in everything, he might be preeminent. He's first. That's a pretty good intro, right? Pretty good reminder about who Jesus is. He's totally truthful. He's totally credible. He's totally reliable. And he's the ruler, not only of old creation, but the ruler of new creation and ultimately over all creation. He's the God of heavens and the earth. Now, let's look at the church. Chapter 3, verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Now, uh, this passage has been moralized uh, in a variety of ways. What do I mean? Uh, it's easy for us to think about somebody being on fire in their spiritual life. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? It's a good thing, right? We can look at people and go, boy, that person is on fire for Jesus for the purposes of God. He is spiritually hot. And in other ways you would refer to somebody as spiritually cold as not being a good thing, but a bad thing, right? That's typically how this passage has been taken. Uh, and it's not bad, uh, but it's kind of weird for Jesus to say, I'd rather you be spiritually on fire or I'd rather you be a spiritual icicle. It's kind of hard for me to think about Jesus saying, I'd rather you just be ice cold in the pew. And there's probably a better way for us to understand this that the Laodicean church would understand. It would be uh, really connected to their modern day experience. Laodicea was a city that was established not on, um, you typically would establish a city uh, with nearness to water and to uh, provision, right? You need food, you need water to be able to sustain the life of the city. Laodicea was not created for that reason. Laodicea was established in the midst of trade routes so that as a city of commerce, it would be at the crossroads of where trade and economic fruitfulness would happen. It was stationed between two significant cities in the ancient Near East called Colossae and Heropolis. Heropolis was known for its hot springs as being things that were very, very uh, spiritually healing. It's, it's the hot tub kind of city, right? Relaxing, uh, healing, that was the general idea. And it was also positioned between Colossae. Colossae is built into the side of a mountain that would have a constant source of fresh, cold water. You with me? Laodicea didn't have any of those things. So what Laodicea had was an aqueduct system that would take and bring hot water from Heropolis and cold water from Colossae over the course of aqueducts till it would come to the city. 
Now, what happens with hot water as you leave it outside for a period of time and it makes its way to the, to the city? It becomes lukewarm. What happens when you take cold water and you bring it from aqueducts from 10 to 15 miles away and you pipe it all the way to the city? It becomes lukewarm. So Laodicea, while being incredibly wealthy, was also well known for having terrible water. Water that would make you want to. Read verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The Greek word there for spit you out is spit you out. You make me want to barf. Now, it's great that Jesus is the amen and the faithful and true witness and the rule of God's creation, but how about having Jesus speak to your church and telling him, you make me want to puke? That's pretty hard, isn't it? That level of revulsion is how Jesus addresses this church. You make me nauseous. You get the point? Now, why? What about this church makes Jesus want to barf? That's a good question, isn't it? I really want to know what about my spiritual life would, want, would make Jesus want to barf. Don't you? No, you don't want to know either? That's okay. I wouldn't, uh, do I really want to know? Uh, maybe not. Maybe I don't really want to know. Look at verse 17. For you say, remember the, uh, the city of Sardis? I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are, say it again, you're dead. So your reputation is what they say about you. How does this church begin? Jesus says, I know your works for, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 17, for you say, you've got an opinion about your spiritual life. You've got an opinion about how healthy you are. You've got a metric by which you are evaluating where you are in, my, in our relationship. Watch what they say. I am rich. You know, if you were to refer, I said this before, Laodicea, you would think about, if you were to think about a modern-day city, this would be the church at, in the Hamptons. This would be the church in Beverly Hills. That those are the kind of places that when people referred to Laodicea, they would they immediately the first thing they would think of is wealth and success. And this church believes that they're wealthy. Now, Jesus is about, what do you think? You think Jesus is going to applaud them or you think Jesus is going to turn it on them? Look at what he says. I, you are rich. Not only do you say you are rich, you've prospered. That is a different term than the first one. They're both rich. They're both wealth. But the I have prospered looks at their past, doesn't it? They look at where they used to be in comparison with where they are now. That their life has a characteristic of always moving up and to the right. You with me? That they've gotten more profits than they used to have. They've gotten a bigger house than they've used to have. They've gotten a bigger church than they used to have. And they're using these metrics in the way they look at their church as advancing and growing and being prosperous. Not only that, they need nothing. What do you get the person who has everything? They've eliminated need from their life. Now, let's be honest. How many times in your life do you make decisions based upon what your perceived needs are? I'll tell you what, I do that all the time. I clearly need this thing. 
And this church is so wealthy is that they've moved in their life away from needing anything to coming to a point of complete confidence, complete wealth, complete security. What happens when you don't need anything? The primary um, agenda in your life becomes leisure. It becomes what I can enjoy. You with me? This church needs nothing. Now watch what Jesus says. You don't realize, not realizing something about yourself. That term, when it, that term realizing is the same word that talks about Jesus when he, in these first few letters, talks about to know. He knows their works. He completely knows the situation. Anytime it refers to Jesus, it talks about exhaustive knowledge, complete knowledge. Anytime it refers to men, it refers to theoretical knowledge. This is, I think, how it's working in my life. And Jesus is about to greatly disappoint this church who has a high view of where they stand with Jesus. Not realizing this, that you are wretched. Uh, I don't know if you, have a, if you have a Bible with cross-references. You may or may not have this. That word wretched is only used one other place. It's used in Romans chapter 7 about how Paul recognizes the truth of his spiritual life. He talks in Romans 7 about uh, wanting to do good and evil being right there with me. So that every time he has an ambition for doing what is right, he recognizes that evil lies close at hand. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. It's one of the most emotional places Paul is in his writings. The most desperate at end of himself that he is when he realizes God's standard and perfect moral law and how when he has the ambition to try to do right, he's consistently faced with his inability. That's a good thing when we come in contact with, God's, in contact with God's law. For this church here, they don't realize it. They don't see it. They don't see that Jesus views them as wretched, as unable to accomplish what he has for them to accomplish, as unable to live up to the standards of which God has called them to. You're not only wretched, you're also pitiable. And then he gives you three verse, three adjectives, boom, 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 that he's gonna explain. Poor, blind, naked. What a contrast. I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Jesus says, poor, blind, naked. Well, what, let's see what, his, what he's going to say about this. Verse 18, I counsel you. Let me make a side point here. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book on prayer. Uh, great little bitty book if you want a book on prayer. Uh, he really gives you handles about in terms of how you should engage in your prayer life. Uh, and one of the things he says in that book that I think is so instructive is that he says real self-knowledge, real understanding of who you are and where you are spiritually cannot happen apart from prayer. That you will never truly understand who you are unless you step into this prayer relationship with God to where you are open before him for his truth to speak into you and for your words and your heart to speak back to him. The word and prayer are essential for us understanding where we are spiritually. Because one of the things that's so clear about this church is that they have a misfire between what they say about themselves and what Jesus says about themselves. What would you call those people? I would call those people self-deceived. Incredible confidence in their success and their wealth and their accomplishments, but no ability to see themselves rightly. They cannot see themselves with sober judgment. 
And until Jesus speaks in, they are blind to the reality that they are blind. They are blind to the reality that they are poor. They are blind to the reality that they are naked. So that one of the, I went to um, Dallas Seminary, and uh, I remember this. I had a professor during my time at Dallas Seminary who said, we set you students up for failure in your expectations. And it's, it's not very often that you have professors say that our seminary is a failure, right? But he said to us, one of the things that happens unavoidably in the seminary is that we get the Chuck Swindolls to come and speak to you. We get the Tony Evans to come and speak to you. We get the people who have found success in their vocation as pastors, and we bring them in front of you and have them speak to you. And unavoidably, what happens in that context is you and I begin to think that our Christian life and your pastoral ministry is fundamentally about success. And one of the greatest dangers to your spiritual life and to my spiritual life, and I'm telling you this as a pastor, I'm going to tell you this in your vocation, whatever vocation that you're getting ready to go and step in, one of the greatest dangers to your spiritual life is success, is winning. Far, 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 you don't even believe it when I say this to you. I barely believe it when I say it to you myself about me. But Jesus seems to think that they can't see. You say this, this is the reality, but this is your confidence. You're misfiring. I counsel you. Let me give you some advice about your spiritual life. Buy from me. What's that tell you about what they put their, what they've invested in? It's a really perfect term for the church at Laodicea, right? They've gone to the wrong vendor and they bought the wrong things. They've been shopping at the wrong places for the wrong things. And Jesus says, come and buy from me. Buy what? Gold refined by fire. You know what that means? It means the purest gold. Gold refined by fire means it, it passes the test. It's the highest carat value. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. What do you mean? I thought we were rich. What do you get the church or the Christian who has everything, who has success and acclaim and confidence and achievement and all of those things? Jesus says you're poor. There's probably a hint here about what God says to the nation of Israel through Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 55, let me just read this to you. This is Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. What do you need to buy what Jesus has? You got to be poor. Got to be at the end of yourself. You got to be empty to receive all of what Jesus can give you. So I've already talked about the wealth of this city. Look at the next one. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. It's embarrassing to be naked in front of Jesus. You can quote me on that. You want to tweet that this week? Go ahead, tweet it. My pastor said this. 
Laodicea was also known not only for its incredible banking wealth, it was also known for one of its key exports, which is a very sleek black wool. It was exported all throughout the ancient Near East. And Jesus says, you think you're clothed in the finest black tie affair. You think you're clothed in the Armani suits of your day. But you're naked and you're exposed before me. You look one way, but the reality is different. Finally, to salve, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea was also home to one of the finest medical schools of their day. And what they exported was a kind of paste that was a medicinal for eye infections. So that they were a center of banking, they were a center of textile and commerce, and they were a center for a medical school that would now export. This is, you had the, uh, the drug companies of the day who began here. And Jesus says, spiritually, you can't see. You're blind as to what really is happening in your spiritual life. Your wealth and your success and your accomplishment and your achievement have blinded you to your spiritual life. Isn't that the case for us? That we get to seasons in life where we feel like we've accomplished and we've made it and we equate winning in the physical realm with success in the spiritual This isn't uncommon for us. This happened all throughout the New Testament as well. This happened with the Pharisees who people looked at and thought they were successful. This happened with uh, a very key individual. You remember the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he's got everything. He's got wealth, he's got his youth, and he's got his achievement in his career. He's winning at everything. And he comes to Jesus, and he has a conversation with Jesus. He said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery, and don't covet. And the rich young ruler says something that is fascinating to me. He says to Jesus two things. He says, all of these things I have kept since I was a boy. What then... Do I still lack? Do you know what that tells me about success and achievement and accomplishment? About having your youth and your strength and your wealth and your position and your accomplishment and everything that the world says you should have ambition for. What it tells me is that the rich young ruler recognizes those achievements are hollow. That they haven't fulfilled him. that he's got it all when it comes to life on this world, in this world. And he's still lacking. Now watch this. Look at what Jesus starts with. Verse 19. Those whom I love. What is the hope for Christians or churches that have grown complacent in their spiritual life? to where their spiritual life is just fine. No real lows, no real highs, just kind of coasting, confident in the fact that they've got enough money in a bank, they've gotten that promotion, they've gotten the achievement, they've gotten the next house, they've gotten the things that they've wanted to aspire toward in their career. 
The only hope, listen to me, the only hope is not Jesus yelling at you when you're in those situations. The only hope for you and I when we are in those situations is that Jesus loves you. You with me? Do you know what Jesus says to the rich young ruler? This rich young ruler says, I've kept all these since I was a boy. What else do I still lack? And in the book of Mark, when Jesus is in this encounter, you could read right by what he does, but Jesus, it says, he does two things. He looks at him, and it says he loved him. That he took this guy at the top of his game, and he loved him right where he was. He loved him in the midst of his ambition that had gotten him to a place where he was spiritually hollow, but physically alive. He looked at him and he loved him. Those whom I love, what does Jesus do when he loves you? I reprove and I discipline. I don't have time to go there. Read Hebrews chapter 12. Later on, when you come back and, and refresh yourself on this text, read the truth about Hebrews 12 that says if you and I don't receive discipline, we are Ill illegitimate sons. Remember how we ended last, way, last week saying that we never have to worry about the wrath of God, that Jesus completely and holistically took the wrath of God for sin for us. The other thing that is true about our relationship with God is that Jesus loves you. And Jesus loves his church. And when you are Jesus' child, when you are his son or daughter, he makes known to you his love for you through his reproof and his discipline. Otherwise, Hebrew says, you're illegitimate children. How many people in here, just by raise of hands, have been in a season in life where some circumstance happened that exposed your spiritual life in a way that was incredibly uncomfortable, but was one of the key developmental places for you to grow to maturity. How many? Come on, be a part. Yeah, raise them high. You see that? Who likes discipline when it happens? Don't leave your hands up, right? None of us. None of us like discipline when it <laughs> That was awesome. When it's one of Jamie's kids said, I do, I love discipline. <laughs> That's great. You, you didn't see that, I saw that. That was great. Uh, I love you, so I discipline you. How do you know you love your kids? You care about where they are. How do we know Jesus loves you? How do we know Jesus loves his church? He intervenes because it's his church. He loves it. He's invested. He's coming after you to make sure that you would not rest in anything and everything that this world says you should rest in. Your achievement, your money, your finance, your house, your promotion, your any of those things. I reprove and I discipline them. So, be zealous and repent. What is a church that has everything need? Sin, listen, sin is way easier in a church to handle than this. You know why? Because you can see the sin. A church that is complacent, you need to shock with the thing in the paddles. What are they called? You know what, the, I can't remember. What are they called? Thank you, a defibrillator. I couldn't remember the word for that thing. 
you have to be shocked out of that spiritual complacency. Be zealous, stir up your affections, and then do the hard work of repent. Do you have the courage to pray Psalm 139? God, search me and know me and try me and see if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Is that a regular part of your spiritual diet? God, don't leave me alone. Dig out of my heart and my soul and my life these ways that will corrupt and crater me. Jesus says, be zealous and repent. Look at verse 20. This is so good. This is so good. Watch this. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now this is very simple. Is Jesus in the church or outside the church? Hey, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. They've got it all except Jesus. Isn't that sad? Doesn't that make you sad? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice. Does that sound familiar? What do the sheep do? They hear his voice. When the master calls, when the master speaks, it's like a dog whistle. Nobody else can hear except the sheep. Sheep whistle. Do they sell those? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. This is so great. This is so great. Jesus promises. What do you get the church who has everything? What do you get the Christian who has everything? What does Jesus get the church who has everything? Jesus' promise for those who are zealous about their spiritual life and are willing to repent, are willing to hear his voice and open the door, Jesus promises intimacy. Isn't that the truth about a lot of our conquests, a lot of our achievement? A lot of the things that, how many times has it been a a trope to hear the guy who gets to 55, has made all the money in his career, and still finds out his life is empty? Just like the rich young ruler. And what Jesus promises is that if you've achieved it all, then you know the one thing that achieving it all will never give you. It's intimate intimacy with Jesus. Are you aware of that tension in your spiritual life? You know one of the things I hate about Christianity? Let me tell you, one of the things I hate about Christianity. You ready? Pastors don't say a lot of this. One of the things I hate about Christianity is just how dang it dependent I am. How embarrassing I am how times in my life I am far more dependent and unrighteous and unable than I'd like to be. Don't you feel that? Wouldn't you, isn't a lot of our ambition spiritually, vocationally, familially, financially about moving to a place of less need? And the thing that is so true about my spiritual life, the longer I walk with Jesus, I am more and more exposed as being unable to be the man that I want to be. 
to be the dad that I want to be, to be the pastor that I want to be. I'm exposed at every turn. And that's God's kind discipline of Steve. And that's God's kind discipline of you, is that he loves you too much to leave you alone. Now, there's one other promise here that is about to blow your mind. Intimacy with with Jesus Christ is great, amen? As the solution to the things that we chase that are so hollow and provide uh, not what we need. That was a terrible sentence. We figured we can edit that later. Look at verse 21. The first one is his invitation to intimacy. The one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. When you move through the New Testament, there are these phrases that put you and I as Christians in a certain place, that put us in certain relationship. John says, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That I'm, I'm no longer an orphan, I'm a part of the family. First Peter says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Ephesians says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But this one's even crazier. This is one I guarantee you have not thought about this week. Remember back with the church of Thyatira, we said that uh, Jesus quotes Hebrews chapter 2 that said he will rule the nations with the rod of iron, and we said that Jesus shares his rule and his reign with Christians, that his oversight and his authority over all of the earth, you and I will share. But this one doesn't look at our relationship to the world. This one looks at our relationship to the throne. Listen, this is great for Americans who don't live in a monarchy. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how much money you got in the bank. I don't care if you get knighted by the Queen of England. You don't have a right to the throne. Does that blow your mind? You can't lay claim to the throne of England because you weren't born in the family. You aren't a part of the heritage and the line of those who by right can lay claim to the throne. You see where I'm going? What's the throne about here? The throne here is about ruling royalty. I don't care, Laodiceans, how successful you are, how much you export, you never have a right to the throne of the Roman emperor. Your achievements will always be hollow, and you'll never be able to claim the throne. And Jesus says, the promise for those who are zealous and repent isn't just intimacy, but it's royalty. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. That Jesus says he will share his royal right to rule with you and with me. See, this is where achievement for us gets us so sideways. We settle for things here that have been promised to us there. We have intimacy with Jesus Christ now, and then one day we will rule and reign with him. We have the right 
to become children of God. Therefore, we are in the family. We are in the royal line. We share the throne with Jesus Christ himself. This is the only spot in all the letters where Jesus refers to the thing he said in John. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have what? Overcome the world. Here it is again. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, this week, this month, this year, you're going to get passed over for a promotion that you think you deserve, and you're going to be devastated. That this year, you're going to have some ambition to achieve and to accomplish something in your field and in your line of work or for your family, and it's not going to happen the way you thought it would happen. And what's happening in those moments when I experience a vocational failure, when I experience the failure of the ambitions in my heart, am I looking at the way Jesus sees my spiritual life in the way that I react and respond to those things? Because oftentimes those failures are exposing the very ambition of the Laodicean church that my life should always go up and to the right. I should always have more this year than I did last year. I should always be higher in the food chain at work than I was last year. And the inherent danger of the Christian life is that you and I would succeed and forget where we are spiritually, would abandon the intimacy and the royalty that, we have, that Jesus has won for us in favor of success here. Let me close with this. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is not a new thing. This is a consistent theme. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of your Bible. Deuteronomy uh, is the... Uh, John, if you and the band would, would come here, we'll close with this. This is um, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is after the nation of Israel has been through the desert wanderings, and they come again to the, to the land which God has promised to them. And as they come to the land that God has promised them, God gives them a warning because all of their parents have died in the 40 years of the desert wandering. And you have the second generation of God's people getting ready to go into the very land that he promised them. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 uh, is the heading in your Bible that probably says this, remember the Lord your God. Do you have that? Remember the Lord your God. Look at verse 11 with me just for a minute. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, did they have houses in the wilderness? No, they, they, it was set up and tear down every day. Set up and tear down every day. Lest when you've eaten and are full, what did they have to rely on in the desert? Manna. They had to every day get up in the morning and trust that God would provide. And build good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply 
and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied. Then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Those of you that have been walking with Jesus for a while, do you remember the early parts of your walk with Christ? Where you remember how dependent you were where you weren't sure how God was gonna answer that prayer, where he was going to come through, where you have stories like this where you go, I didn't know how God was gonna handle that. I didn't know how God was gonna manage that. And the greatest danger for the people of Israel isn't the wilderness. The greatest danger for the people of Israel is that they've forgotten. Beware, verse 17, lest you say in your heart, my power, and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. If you're complacent, if you are resting on what you have accomplished in how you have prospered, Jesus says, be zealous and repent. See your life the way he sees it and find the intimacy that he promises to you and I. Because listen, it's not out there. Amen? It's not out there. I don't care how much you have, how much you achieve, how much you accomplish, you will never have achievement with Jesus on your terms. You gotta come open-handed, open-hearted, aware of really where you stand and then how much in need you are. And Jesus answers with intimacy. Father in heaven, how we need this. For those in this room who have experienced the allure of ambition and achievement and accomplishment, would you reset their heart and mind here this morning? Would there be a zealousness about their spiritual life? Would there be prayers prayed here this morning where we ask you to search us and know us and see if there be any offensive way and lead us in the way everlasting. Father, we acknowledge here and today that our greatest threat is often ourselves. Would you protect us and guide us? Would you be here? Would you find us to be a consistently repenting people for the glory of your name? We thank you so much for the intimacy that is freely available to those who come to you with open hands. Bless us and keep us. May your face shine upon us. Be the greatest treasure of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.